Good afternoon. I want to thank everyone for joining us in what I think will be a really important and interesting conversation. I know we're all thinking about COVID a lot these days, and well, we should after you have over 575,000 people die in less than a year. Um, you have to think about that. Uh, but I want to turn our attention for a moment to diabetes. Um, what I find most intriguing about diabetes is that it has been growing in our country. Uh, when we started the National Minority Quality Forum back in the year um, 2000, around 3% of the American population had diabetes. Uh, it's now about 9.5%. Uh, the rate of diabetes hospitalizations uh, by the time we get to 2030, uh, we'll see something akin to what we see in COVID, uh, which is it will outstrip our ability to provide care. Uh, we really do have to pay attention to this disease. And I want to put up a, a couple of slides to kind of ground us uh, in the conversation. Uh, we have some real experts uh, who are going to be joining us uh, who have been on the frontier of diabetes care and cardiovascular care uh, for years. And um, what they have to say to you will be extremely important. What, what I tell everyone about the National Minority Quality Forum, we're like the statisticians at the baseball game. We don't go down on the field and play baseball. We don't play baseball. But what we try to do is collect the numbers, uh, try to help folks understand what the numbers say, uh, and uh, really put that information into the hands of those who are delivering care in real hopes uh, that we can really transform our healthcare system. So I'm going to ask uh, uh, Nina to put up my slides, uh, and we'll um, you know start the conversation. So I think there's some three key findings that I want to walk you through um, as we talk about diabetes. And I want to take the Medicare fee-for-service uh, program as our point of departure. But first, again, to continue the level set, next slide. I find this next slide really remarkable. Um, it's about healthcare coverage in the United States. And what's really important is that 45% of everyone in the United States who has health care gets it from the federal government. About 61 million in Medicare, 78 million uh, in Medicaid, and that's a consequence of Obamacare and 9 million of, through the federal administration. Of uh, the employer-based system is about uh, 47%, but the government health insurance is going to overtake the employer-based system naturally because the, the, the growing numbers of Americans who are going into Medicare means that um, uh, the uh, government insurance is going to overtake. Um, and then we still have 8% of the American population that's uninsured. Um, and so when we talk to our members of Congress and state legislators and others, we talk to them as trustees 
of really an important part of the American healthcare system. And so as we start to talk about diabetes, we want to talk about that in mind. Next slide. The other slide that I like to talk about is where does all that money come from in the healthcare system? It comes from the American households, $2 trillion a year. Everybody likes to pretend like it's their money, but the money came from the American people. They pay it, they pay it in taxes, they pay it uh, through the employer-based system. Um, the whole system is comes from the pocketbooks of the American people. And they have a right to expect value. Next slide. So in Washington, I always hear about value. We want a value-based system. And sometimes they talk about they want it to be patient-centric. But here is really what patient-centric is all about. It's about mitigating patient risk. The expectation of every patient when they come into the American healthcare system is that the system is going to operate to lower their risk. It's nothing more fancy than that. Keep me out of the hospital, keep me out of the emergency room, keep me from disability, keep me from dying, improve the quality of life. No patient expects the system to elevate their risk. And what we see in the American healthcare system is risk does get elevated. It gets elevated uh, because there's such a focus on managing financial risk that we lose sight of patient centricity. Patient risk is about lowering that hospitalization, ER visit, et cetera. Mitigating patient risk is a daily commitment. It doesn't matter your race, your creed, your sexual orientation, political beliefs, none of that matters. Uh, when you enter the American healthcare system, the expectation is that you're going to get your risk lowered. I would argue that any healthcare policy or value assessment that elevates patient risk requires the informed consent of patients. You can't elevate patient risk uh, without telling them that that's what you're about to do. So next slide. So here's what we find when we start to look at uh, the Medicare fee-for-service program with that risk model in mind, right? First of all, there's this really widespread, I'm going to call it disinformation, and I realize that's a provocative term these days, uh, but to look at out-of-pocket medical costs is distracting us from looking at patient risk. Uh, and I'm going to give you some examples of, of what, what I'm talking about. The other thing that we find is that the rate of hospitalizations and emergency room visits have essentially remained stagnant over the last five years. Year after year after year, uh, the program is kicking out uh, the same results. And when I look at those flat lines of those year after year of the same results, what it says to me, it is not a learning system. It is not learning how to reduce patient risk. If you think about COVID, right, one of the marvels of COVID is that we learn how to treat the disease. All of a sudden, there's this disease called COVID that never existed, at least <coughs> in its current form. And over six or seven months, we learned how to treat patients with COVID, and we started to reduce patient risk uh, with new therapeutics, 
with the way in which care was delivered, et cetera. Uh, but when you look at diabetes care in the Medicare fee-for-service program, it is not learning. Let me show you a slide. Next slide. So here, I'm just taking the numbers. I'm just giving you the numbers. Uh, look at the number of unique hospitalizations from 2014 to 2018. Basically, every year, about 3.7 million unique hospitalizations uh, for uh, with the underlying condition of diabetes is going on in the Medicare program. It's not changing one iota. Look at the, the patient rate. Some might say, well, you know, the patient size may adjust it. And so we look at the per patient rate. That's essentially a flat line. Look at the emergency room visits. Another set of flat lines. Look at the per patient rate of visits uh, for uh, emergency room. Look at that number, 64% of Medicare fee-for-service beneficiaries have a unique ER visit. What kind of system is that, right? So you just, I'm just giving you the numbers. I, I'm not a physician, I'm, I, you know, I don't treat, but what I can look at the numbers and ask the question, should that system be learning? And in fact, ask the larger question, if it is not learning, is it elevating patient risk? Does it have an obligation to lower those risks? And I would argue, yes, that you just can't sit there and pretend like these numbers year after year are not your responsibility. Um, you have to figure out how to lower those risks and understand what's happening to patients. Next slide. So part of the discussion, I live here in Washington and you see all the, 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 the media and the members and, and here I'm just taking some publications um, and the focus was on insulin in particular, the affordability of insulin, particularly uh, in the Medicare program. Um, you know, we can talk about it in the commercial, uh, in the uh, employer-based system, it's another conversation, but I'm gonna focus it in on the on the Medicaid, Medicare, sorry, program. Because in Medicaid, there aren't any out-of-pockets. It's all free there. But in the Medicare fee-for-service program uh, is where I want to take us. And we spend a lot of energy uh, around uh, these out-of-pocket costs for insulins. And I live here in Washington, and there's all kinds of conversations about reimportation of drugs and, um, and you know, coming up with this um, system or that system to adjust. But let's look at the numbers. That's really what's important. What do the numbers actually say? Next slide. So when we go in and we look at the numbers, and you know, cost is relative. So I want to be really careful here uh, because part of what's happening in American society is that our distribution of wealth is so upside down, right? That uh, the average household income for a Medicare beneficiary is about $25,000. Uh, and so, you know, out of that, you know, you, you've got to eat, you've got to pay your rent, you've got to pay your medicines. And I understand out-of-pocket costs and, and those numbers are really important. But look at those orange lines. These are Medicare beneficiaries who are being treated for diabetes. And I'm just looking at their uh, out-of-pocket costs uh, for their prescription drugs. It's, it's basically under $300 a year, right? Out-of-pocket costs for prescription drugs is basically under 
of Denali. And now they have a lot of other costs because when they go to those hospitals and they go to those emergency room visits, uh, what you see is they end up with five and $6,000 worth of out-of-pocket costs because in the Medicare fee-for-service program, 20% of, of every uh, visit, emergency room, hospitalization, 20% of the cost goes to the beneficiaries. And so it puts incredible pressure on them. I've also isolated out for you uh, the out-of-pocket cost for um, people being treated with diabetes who have insulin, who are taking insulin. And again, look at that orange line. It's under $600 a year. Not $600 a month. It's under $600 a year. Now, those are average costs. And obviously, uh, there's some because of the Part D program that they've chosen. Um, their costs are, are, are completely out of whack. Uh, and, and obviously, adjustments need to be made there. Uh, but what I'm talking about is where we're focusing at. Uh, we're focusing here, but nobody's talking about they're all going to the emergency room, they're all going to the hospital, and the numbers remain the same year after year after year. Next slide. And so I'm, I'm just going to say it. I think the Medicare fee-for-service program is a dumb program. It's not learning. If it's not learning, then it's dumb. Right? It's just dumb. And the dumbness means that people end up going to the hospital and the emergency room visit, and we're not fixing it. And we have to fix it. We want to see those trend lines go down. And there's too much disinformation that's driving policy and taking the attention away of policymakers, who, if you remember now, they're the real trustees of these programs, and we're diverting their attention and not looking at what really is important. And what's really important is that we need to reimagine the system so we're mitigating patient risk. No patient wants to go into the system believing that they're going into a system that is not learning, that's a complete flat line, uh, that their risk is going to remain the same. Uh, they've got a 60% chance of going to the emergency room visit. Uh, they're going to have all of these uh, uh, unique hospitalizations. And so um, I think that's the point. And built into that, obviously, is disparities. You know, that's what all those numbers uh, add up to. And what it means is for African-Americans and Hispanics, the numbers are worse uh, than what I showed you. You, you. you can look at 70 and 80 percent uh, emergency room visits and hospitalizations, and their flat line in those numbers are flatlined as well. And so I wanted to set up this conversation um, because um, I think it's important for you to know that there are new technologies, there are uh, devices and medicines and things that are coming out that can make a real change, that can bring down these numbers. Uh, and I think that's infrastructure building in the context of this administration. And so we're looking forward to this panel discussion. Uh, and now I'm going to turn it over uh, to Dr. Davidson, who's who's an endocrinologist. I've known Jaime for years. Um, he knows these numbers better than I do. Uh, he works with patients all over the country, and he, he's an incredible individual uh, who's worked hard at this. Um, Dr. Jaime Davidson. Well, thank you so much, Gary, for such a, a great uh, information for all of us. And can you see my screen? Yep, you're good. Perfect. 
Well, the first thing I want to do is to thank you. You know, you are the brain behind the National Minority Quality Forum that is changing, you know, the way we actually practice medicine and it will continue, especially for underserved populations. So, you know, our mission, and you, you know, from National Minority Quality Forum is just an amazing mission. And, you know, your talk today uh, made, you know, that point very clear. So I want to, to take a, a five minutes to tell you a little bit about disparity in access to diabetic, diabetes technology. This is where I work at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center here in Dallas. I hope one day you come and visit us. You know, and what I want to, to cover today is understand the current medical Medicare data uh, in the use of CGM. And we need to learn that disparities do exist. Like Gary told you, you know, there's a lot of things that we need to fix. And we need to learn how to, the implementation of CGM helps patients and the healthcare system. It's not just patients, it increases cost. So if we look here at 2018 FFS Medicare, you can see that, you know, 78% are white Caucasian. And the beneficiaries with a CGM prescription from that group is 86.5%. We Latino Hispanics are only 7% of the Medicare beneficiaries. But if you look, we're only 7%, but only 3.3% of that 7%, which is almost nothing, you know, actually benefits from CGM prescription. And we go to African-Americans that comprise 13% of Medicare beneficiaries. You know, only 5.1% have the ability, you know, to actually use CGM. Dr. Davis, tell them a little yes. bit about CGM. Tell them what a CGM is. CGM is continuous glucose monitoring. You know, the ability, you know, to actually look at your blood sugars and make changes. So. In my eyes, okay, you know, knowing the blood sugar values is essential for somebody that has been diagnosed with diabetes. It should be, you know, every person diagnosed with diabetes should be able to know her and his glucose levels. For patients with diabetes, continuous glucose monitoring is the GPS that enables them to get to the target A1C with the least risk of hypoglycemia, is if I will be going today to Washington DC driving, if I don't have a GPS, I will not get there. Then how can we expect a patient with diabetes taking drugs or insulin to get to a target of A1C of six and a half or seven without having the ability to know the blood sugars? For patients on insulin, CGM, again, continuous glucose monitoring, gives them timely information that clearly provides benefits in the short and long term. Minority patients seems to be excluded from this amazing technology. So here some disparities and some questions, you know, for all of you. Why do African American and Latino Hispanic communities use CGM at disproportionately lower rates. Then some hypothesis here. 
lower rates of, of insurance, you know, higher rates of Medicare coverage. Many Medicaid programs now cover CGM. Some people don't know that, but some does not cover it. Some have onerous documentation policies, and that makes it very difficult. Also, you know, there is less access to endocrinologists, which we, the endocrinologists, are most of the prescribers for CGM. And we're not enough minorities in the endocrinology diabetes specialty. And that's something we need to fix. Our kids need to go to school, finish elementary, finish high school, go to college, and get to medical school, to nursing school, you know, to PhDs, because we need to have minorities in medicine. Prescriber biases on perceptions of ability to manage technology. Because they see a minority, they think we cannot do it. You know, I believe there are also some cost-sensitive economic factors. Don't have, cannot afford, or believe they cannot afford a smart device. You know, some issues that we know for some of us are transportation issues, time off work, you know, if we actually work on a per hour fee and we miss two or three hours of work, you know, to learn technology, you know, some of us may not do it. Some of our minorities may not go to that visit. So we need to fix that too. Maybe have, you know, after hours visits you know, for patients with diabetes. Higher rates of complications such as blindness, manual dexterity that might interfere with CGM, you know, I don't know if that is something so different from the rest, but it could be. You know, we heard a lot of COVID today and yesterday, but I will tell you, we minorities have more COVID and therefore and those of us minorities with diabetes, poor control makes them more vulnerable to complications and hospitalizations. So I'm going to move a little bit to a little more specific issues, you know, for the Latino Hispanics. Language, many Latino Hispanics prefer to speak and read Spanish. A significant number actually don't understand English. They speak and read Spanish only. Even with a translator, things are lost in the exchange. What I say is lost in translation. Cultural competence by physicians and staff, even if we're Latino physicians, sometimes we don't have the cultural competence because we are in a different world. We, and we think that everybody understands what we're saying. Now, I'm going also to tell you that there are poor Spanish translation of brochures, instructions, etc. You know, and they put it to a sixth grade, you know, and that translation is, is specifically from English to Spanish without thinking what the Spanish is all about. And then there's no question. Some of my patients are technology fear. They fear technology and we need to spend a little more time with them to prevent that from happening. But once they learn, they're no different than anybody else. So in summary, the use of CGM in people with type 2 diabetes have shown improvements in A1C, that is improvements in blood sugars over time, 
including those not even taking insulin. Reductions in hospital admissions in people with type 2 diabetes on base of follow insulin. With savings in direct and indirect costs, CGM in insulin requiring patients with type 1 diabetes is today the standard of care. So let's be proactive and treat all patients with diabetes to the same level of care. All patients matter. Thank you so much. That's my email in case you have any questions. Thank you, Dr. Davis. So when I was thinking about uh, this question of um, diabetes and uh, the long road that we've had uh, trying to um, uh, figure out what to do about diabetes, I went to the smartest person I know, uh, uh, Dr. Keith Ferdinand, and I asked him, I said, so if you were in charge, uh, what would you do uh, to bring down uh, this epidemic in our community? And uh, he sent me some slides and I'm going to ask him to present because uh, he is a real doctor and I'm not. And so I think you're going to find a, a really a pathway forward. Dr. Keith Ferdinand. Thank you. If I can have my slides. Uh, Gary, you certainly are making a difference. I, I agree with Dr. Davidson. The, the data and the material that you've been able to bring forth to us as a practicing physician community is very important because it's not enough for us to sit in clinics and hospitals and wait for patients to come to us. In order to make a difference, we're going to have to have public health recommendations that are actually put into functional use and it's more than just individual doctor, patient, nurse practitioner, patient, pharmacist, patient relationship. It goes beyond that. So what you're doing is very important. You did call me and I kind of made a joke because I was really busy that day. I think it was a clinic day and I said, Gary, did I ask you for work? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I always take your calls because I know how serious and dedicated you are. So I put together a few slides I'm a cardiologist, and Dr. Davidson, as you know, especially in persons who have diabetes and cardiovascular disease, there are many more cardiologists who see these patients than endocrinologists. You're the smartest kids in the room, but there are just not enough endocrinologists. So I think all practitioners need to learn how to treat persons with diabetes and need to advocate for our patients with diabetes. So here's some of my thoughts. Let's go for the next slide. First of all, I think we need to institutionalize self-management. That's not a side story. That is the story. A patient who himself or herself knows about their disease and how to treat their disease will be empowered to force the clinicians to do the right thing. We call it shared decision-making, where it's not just the patient passively receiving medications and therapies. So we need state-of-the-art education, increase the knowledge. Dr. Davidson made the point with the Hispanic Latinx population, the same can be true of Asian American populations, Native populations, African Americans. It should be literacy appropriate, culturally appropriate education. And one thing I tend to do, if even I'm busy and I'm tired and the clinic's going on long, I try to sit down in a chair 
eye level and talk to patients and have them tell me their concerns. They've actually done surveys and most of the time the patients aren't asking for a lot of time. They just want you to address their concerns. At the bottom, we need to remove barriers to new medications and devices. I try to use some of the newer medications because many of them protect against chronic kidney disease and for cardiologists actually are now indicated for reducing heart failure and atherosclerotic events. But just last week, I started a patient on an SGLT2 inhibitor. Insurance wouldn't cover it. And I then found out the poor guy had paid $100 for five pills. That is not hyperbole. That's exactly what had happened. If the patients are going to need metformin or sulfonylurea, you can give them that free. Metformin does have some benefits in terms of total mortality. Sulfonylurea may be needed in patients who have very high glucose don't have the cardiovascular benefits. There's no reason why patients should have to pay for these basic older medications. Next slide. Prior authorization is something which is very onerous for us as clinicians. If we want to get continuous glucose monitoring, if we want to get newer diabetic medications, they make us jump through so many hoops and do so much paperwork that most clinicians just give up and tell them, well, we'll go back to your endocrinologist. Well, endocrinologists are being overloaded. As we have a population with increasing obesity, increasing age, we have an increase in diabetes. And we're not going to be able to get out of this epidemic of diabetes if we don't help the endocrinologists care for these patients. We need lower cost for insulin. Dr. Davidson showed you some data, and Gary, you showed some data on that. It's really terrible that patients can't afford life-saving medications. And you've done this, uh, Gary, you've identified those patients who are the recurrent admissions to the ED in the hospitals. There are some people who don't understand the disease process. We as clinicians don't take the time to educate the patients. So they have this cycle of poor diabetes control, hypoglycemia, hypoglycemia, acute heart failure, uncontrolled hypertension, and they use the emergency room as their primary source of care. We need to get over that and we need to integrate social services. I remember uh, decades ago that social workers were actually part of the healthcare team. They would go to the bedside, they would walk in the emergency room and talk to the patients and see if they could help them get their medications, help them access insurance status. Many of them would be eligible for Medicaid and not ever have signed up. Next slide. Diabetes education classes are available, but most patients don't use them. And many clinicians rushing from room one to room two don't take the time and make sure the patients avail themselves of these diabetes education classes. And we've already talked about the need for culturally appropriate, literacy appropriate education. Next slide. We as clinicians need to be educated. We need people like Dr. Davidson to teach us how to treat these patients better because we see them. We, we're going to see them. We're going to need to treat them, and we need to have continuing medical education for clinicians, continuing education for nurses about these new drugs and the devices. As just shown in the very erudite informed presentation, although short from Dr. Davidson, continuous glucose monitoring can be life-saving. How many clinicians know that? I can tell you most don't. Next slide. And we need to eliminate this whole prior authorization thing. It really has nothing to do with medicine. It's a way of trying to keep costs down. 
I think if you're looking at heart failure, the number one cause of admission in the diabetes population, you look at chronic kidney disease, number one cause of being on in-stage dialysis, which costs anywhere from nine to $130,000 per year, it's three times more common in African-Americans than the percentage of the population. You can make the argument that we're actually increasing costs by not treating patients appropriately. And the electronic authorization, if you're going to use prior authorization, has got to be the way. Filling out faxes and calling and doing what they call peer-to-peer, -peer, where you have to sit on a telephone call at an 800 number and wait for 20 minutes to a retired ophthalmologist from Iowa to tell you why you need to approve or not approve a medication. It just doesn't make good sense. And that's what goes on in regular, regular practice. Next slide. Metformin at no cost. So find your rears free or limited. They really don't have any cardiovascular protection, but maybe needed for some patients. Next slide. And lower cost insulin. Just remove those barriers. Next slide. So Barry, Gary, thank you for the million dollars, the two two million dollars, and that's what I would do with it to try to help our patients. Thank you, Doctor. Uh... Davidson and, and uh, Dr. Ferdinand um, put your two ideas together and I think we can begin to lower those hospitalizations uh, and ER visits. I'm now going to turn to David Lavero. Uh, David, when we first met, was uh, president of the American Diabetes Association. Uh, he's been living with these issues around uh, diabetes uh, for years. Uh, we've published together, uh, and so he, he knows these numbers as, as well as I do, and I'm going to ask him to um, share his thoughts and comments on all this. Thank you very much, Gary. I really appreciate it. Um, I've really enjoyed the discussion today, and I'm going to emphasize and summarize some things here, but there's a lot going on. First, I want to be really clear about something. Diabetes is one of the major public health crises of our time, and particularly in the United States. We're talking well over 30 million people that know they have diabetes, and a whole bunch more that don't know they have it, but are suffering from it. It's a leading cause of many, many serious diseases, blindness, kidney failure, lower extremity amputations. This is a nasty disease that you don't flame out with, you rust away. And it's a difficult disease to treat if we don't have the tools and the resources and the capacity to really bring all things forward to engage it. Um, many points were brought up here today. I wanna to start with, uh, with access. Access to quality care is essential for all diseases and particularly important for diabetes, which has a unique property in that how it works and how well you treat it has a lot to do with the patient's involvement as well as the provider. It's not as simple as just taking a pill and giving an easy prescription. There's a lot of things that focus into this. I was happy to hear the last speaker saying that he sits down and tries to talk to people about it. It's a shared decision process and there's not nearly enough of that in our healthcare system. Which brings me to the other point about access. And Gary brought this up at the very beginning. We have very poor access mechanisms in this country because we still focus on bottom line. 
dollar impact, right? And we're not focusing so much on reducing risk and reducing burden. The cost of diabetes is extraordinary. Last year, we were well over $370 billion in direct costs associated with diabetes and its management. And that number is going up as I speak, okay? It's a really serious problem. And the social and psychological impact are incalculable. It's a huge burden for many, many people. And we need to pay much more attention to that and stop thinking about trying to reduce absolute cost and think about reducing burden. Because if we don't reduce burden, we're gonna still increase the cost. We're still gonna drive up the values that are, are nibbling away at, at all of our economic resources. I think that we need to really think about education and particularly when we think about minority populations. I work in Arizona where we have Mexican origin populations, a lot of them here, and, and Jaime's right. We cannot treat everybody with the same model. It's not like one size fits all. It has to be tailored and customized to cultural beliefs, to, to economic realities, to environmental barriers, a bunch of stuff that impacts how people utilize healthcare systems. It's not at all surprised that people in Arizona use the emergency room with their Mexican origin for multiple reasons partly because they can't really afford a lot of the health care that we would like. They have poor insurance coverage. And in many cases, they're worried about uh, legal status and documentation problems. Okay, So these are things that if we don't attend to them, if we don't pay attention to them, it's going to be a problem. And the costs associated with diabetes will continue to escalate to the point where they will tax the system in ways that are almost unimaginable. I think we need to be thinking about the the issue of, of equity, uh, of, of giving everybody the same quality of care. And as the last speaker said very clearly, and, and it's a huge problem, there's a lot of burden put in front of providers to provide best care. Clearly, continuous glucose monitoring, a device that lets you see the stream of your glucose you know, minute by minute, can save lives, can reduce hospitalizations, can reduce emergency room visits. These have been shown in peer-reviewed publications, but yet they do everything they can, the system, I might say, does everything they can to make it difficult for providers to put this technology into play, particularly with low income and minority populations. And when you look at the data, it's disproportionately skewed. It's not, there's a lot of reasons we could argue about this, but mostly, middle-class and upper-class Caucasian people are getting the benefits and very few people of Latinx, Hispanic, Asian, or African-American uh, heritage are getting the same level of benefit. This is a policy decision and it requires that all of us try to focus our energies to some extent on informing policy that this is not suitable, it is not justified, it's not logical, and it needs to be altered. We need to have a voice that says, hey, look, you got to change some of this. You shouldn't have to sit on a phone if you're a provider for 45 minutes and try to get uh, access to something that you know will help your patient and your patient wants to engage in, right? But yet that's the system. The cost of things is extraordinary. Yesterday, I'm a, I'm a type one diabetic of 45 years. Yesterday, I went and picked up my insulin prescription and they said, your copay is $100. And I'm 
I, my jaw hit the, the ground. Now, I can afford it, right? I, I'm a, a fortunate person that I'm able to, to afford it, but it's a hundred bucks for 30 days. This is a lot of money. This is now we're starting to talk about money that's gonna, in many cases, for many people, be a trade-off between food security, between childcare, between rent and mortgages, and a bunch of other things. So the bottom line here is that we have a public health problem of significant scale and significant impact. We have several barriers to that that are acting. Part of it is the system that's looking not at risk reduction, but at bottom line fiscal reduction. We have barriers to providers. We have providers that do not receive the education or are given the time in their healthcare system to have meaningful interactions with their patients to make adequate shared decisions. We don't have the ability for everybody to get the same access to the same level of treatment. And while we have emerging and new technologies, which have phenomenal impact on this disease and our ability to optimize it, we don't give all people equal opportunities to engage it. These are problems and they require that all of us, all of us listening today, have some say to our system providers. We have to talk to our senators, our representatives. We have to make the point that, hey, look, this isn't right and it's not logical and it's it's got to be stopped. Now, as a final point, you know, like all of you, I've been listening to a lot to the news and I've been hearing a lot about the systemic racism that's caused so many problems in this country. And it's a very serious issue. And I just want to make the point that it not only exists at a social plane, but now it's existing at a medical one. It's actually impacting how we deliver care in this country. And that has got to stop. I guess that's what I had to say. And I thank you for listening. Thank you, David. I'm going to ask him to put us into panel view. Um, Jaime, uh, you talked about um, CGM, so let's take a, a moment to better understand uh, the, the value and use uh, of a CGM. And please start off by talking a little bit about time and range um, uh, against using um, sort of the standard blood glucose uh, strip. Okay, well, you know, I, I want to congratulate all the speakers. I learned from each one of you every time I listen to Kid, to David, to Gary. So it's, it's great, you know, time in range, you know, CGM, you know, I don't know how many of you really know continuous glucose monitoring, but you know, it, it provides you glucose, you know, continuously and time in range, you know, we can put it between 70 and 140 or 80 to 150, it depends the patient. And that time in range without significant hyperglycemia or significant hypoglycemia is very important for outcomes. You know, it prevents getting into the emergency room with an episode of hypoglycemia. It also teaches patients, you know, how to eat properly because, you know, if they go and have a bigger hamburger and a regular soft drink, you know, they can see after that meal, you know, how high the glucose goes. So it is a training for them to eat properly. And, and David probably, you know, that uses CGM can tell you a lot more from his own, you know, experience. Well, just real quickly, CGM allows me to do something that up until a few years ago was impossible. 
there was no way for me to understand what was going on with my glucose except taking little tiny snapshots with a home glucose monitoring system, right? So that's what was happening right then and there. And I didn't know where I was going to be two hours later unless I kept pricking my finger and getting more and more results. So CGM lets me see trends. It shows me when I'm going up. It shows me when I'm going down. The importance of that just to be really clear, is we now know there's definitive data that shows that staying high all the time is the, the factor that precipitates a bunch of problems with diabetes that are really costly and very disruptive, like extremity amputations, like cardiovascular disease leading to strokes, like retinopathy leading to blindness. These are not trivial conditions, but they're famous in diabetes because nobody could figure out when they were high all the time. Well, now they can, and they can take action to intercept it. Similarly, if I get hypoglycemia behind the wheel of my car, I'm very likely to go crashing into whatever, and that's probably another car with somebody else in it, right? So you hear a lot about these stories of people having terrible accidents and terrible episodes because hypoglycemia, which is low blood sugar, confuses you, dazes you, and you don't know what the heck's going on. So you can intercept that. So this is a, a thing that at the public health level, I think everybody should have, you know what I mean? It's like one of these tools where you can really figure out what's going on and you can intercept it at a time where you're still capable of doing it. Because if my blood sugar goes too high or it goes too low, I become stupid. I lose cognitive capacity. I lose the ability to reason clearly and make good decisions. And that's not a place that any of us want to be. My uh, grandson, uh, had type 1 diabetes and uh, one summer I took him to the beach and I was in charge of managing his blood glucose and you know what I felt like I felt like somebody gave me a car without a gas gauge <laughs> and every once in a while I had to jump out of the car because put a stick into the gas gauge to see if I had any fuel and that's exactly what that was like and that's what CGMs do they give you a gas gauge um, so that you can better manage uh, the disease. And I think a lot of those numbers that we were looking at earlier uh, can be impacted uh, if we help people use these uh, these new devices. Now, a lot, of, a lot of people think that those numbers that I showed you, people go to the hospital uh, for diabetes, but that's not what they're going to the hospital for. And I'm going to ask uh, uh, Dr. Ferdinand, to talk to us about the cardiovascular events uh, that really are the drivers in these hospitalizations and what we can do to bring down those cardiovascular events in people with diabetes. You're on mute, Keith. Let me tease that out for our audience. Uh, what Gary is talking about is the fact that glucose control is extremely important for persons with diabetes in order to cut down on what we call micro, M-I-C-R-O, small vessel diseases, the retinopathy in the eye, the kidney disease. The kidney is basically a, a tuft, a group of small blood vessels. But if you wanna really also address at the same time, macro, M-A-C-R-O, meaning big vessel disease, you're gonna to have to control blood pressure, you're gonna to have to control the cholesterol. And in fact, it's the diabetes specialist who have taught us that it's important to empower patients to check themselves. And now in the sphere of out of office monitoring, self-monitoring, 
there are actually now class 1A evidence in the cardiology field for doing things like self-monitored blood pressures. Waiting every three to four months for the magic blood pressure taken by your doctor in the office, often done in a rush, often with your arm dangling while he's running from room to room, and white coat effect where the blood pressure goes up because the doctor's making you nervous. That is not the way to manage blood pressure. So for persons who have diabetes, not only do we need continuous glucose monitoring, we need continuous blood pressure monitoring. And the best way to do that is for the patient to be empowered to take care of himself and herself and partner with the doctor. Also in terms of lipids or cholesterol, most of these patients are gonna need cholesterol lowering medicines. And in that particular case, again, they need to be able to know what their numbers are. The National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute used to have the red, yellow, and green. We all saw the posters in the airport where people were empowered to know their numbers. Well, nobody's doing that broad-based education anymore. So it's no wonder with aging, an increase in obesity, an increase in diversity, that we see an increase in diabetes, and along with it, an increase in cardiovascular events. So Gary, you're, you're absolutely right. And I made the point and I'll make it again. We as cardiologists see more persons with diabetes than the endocrinologists, not because we're smarter, we're not, but because that's where the patients are. They're in the cardiac clinics with heart failure, peripheral arterial disease, hypertension, strokes. We see them, so we need to treat them. Thank you. Um, we're gonna open up for some questions in just a minute. So if you have some questions, put them in the, uh... Uh, uh, the, the chat box, I see a couple. Uh, we are going to uh, share the slides. Uh, I'm sure Dr. Ferdinand and um, Dr. Davidson won't mind. And so we will uh, work out so we can share those um, uh, slides uh, uh, with everyone. Uh, uh, and so if you uh, put your questions in the chat box, uh, uh, we'll, we'll take a look. So, so the challenge is, you know, we, we're starting to uh, uh, get um, uh, telehealth, right? And and that's what I hear uh, Dr. Ferdinand really talking to us about is that uh, we're on the verge of telehealth, which can help us manage uh, a disease like diabetes. And this gets back to that point I was making before about patient risk. Because if Medicare was really about patient risk, Right? It would use these new technologies. It would make them available. It would accelerate all those technologies uh, because uh, it, by not doing it, it elevates risk. That's the whole point. It's not a benign act, right? If you if you deny access to things that can actually help patients, you are in fact elevating uh, their risk. And so, I know there's been a lot of conversations with some of the members and. We've been involved in that as they've been talking about telehealth, but they're thinking of telehealth as internet access. Dr. Ferdinand is talking about telehealth from a clinical perspective, is in which we are starting to use devices to better manage people uh, with uh, chronic disease. So I'm going to uh, ask Dr. Ferdinand to, to comment on that. I want to put yeah. words in his mouth, but I think that's what he's talking So the pandemic has been a terrible, terrible period we've all lived through. We're still living through it. I'm on the governor's task force and I work with NIH and some of their task force. And unfortunately, most Americans now think it's over, it ain't over. 
we're kind of in a, in a situation now where especially the young people don't want to get vaccinated. Many of them are going to experience long haulers. They're going to have a loss of breathing. They're going to get tired. They're going to lose their taste and lose their smell. So they'll see. Yeah, you, they're not hospitalized and dying like the old folks. But stuff don't happen. One of the things we learned in this pandemic is that if we empower patients to monitor their glucose, monitor their blood pressure, we can then partner with them in modifying these risks using not only the internet, but even the simple telephone. And for instance, I don't know if this is true for some of the continuous glucose monitors. I'd like uh, David and I mean to tell me whether or not this is true, but with the blood pressure monitors, we can actually set up a Bluetooth where I can have an app I have an app, it's not theoretically, in my phone and see the blood pressure that's taken out of the office. So perhaps if we learn how to integrate some of these self-measured values with the clinician, it doesn't remove the need to sit down face-to-face, eye-to-eye, culturally appropriate, literacy appropriate conversation. The laying of hands, I think, is divine. But it means that you don't have to wait for that magic every three to four month visit in order to address these risk factors. So uh, I would like to know in terms of the continuous glucose monitors, can they be Bluetooth directly to the clinician? Yeah, there, that technology exists right now and it's it's glorious because other people can monitor you and see things that are going on and, and interact with you by a text message. Say, hey, Dave, you know, you, maybe you want to make an adjustment here. Maybe you want to do something. I want to add a point though, because this is really important to me. You you know, there's two types of diabetes, folks. There's type one, like I am, which is insulin dependent. Your beta cell no longer makes insulin. You have to take shots, right? And then that's about 10% of all people with diabetes. The whopping 90% are people that we call type two, which is a condition that is similar, but you still have some ability to either make insulin or you don't use it as effectively. We're not exactly sure what's going on, but it's a much bigger group of people. And one of the problems we're talking about here is that there's a, a tendency at the federal level to deny people with type two continuous glucose monitoring technology. They're not seen as needing it as much. And this is short-sighted. It's a lot of people, a lot of people, we're talking, you know, 25 million people. But the important number here is that the people who have high risk for developing type 2 diabetes, whereas they've already got metabolic disruption, is about 90 million people in the United States. That's like a third of the freaking country. So we're talking in another 20 years, one person in three is probably going to have diabetes if we keep doing this, right? So providing better access to technology that can help people control the condition and minimize all the sequela, the cardiovascular disease, the blindness, the kidney failure, the amputations, all that stuff, which is part and parcel, is really important. Because last year, more people died from diabetes than from HIV and breast cancer combined, okay? More people. And prostate cancer, you could probably add that into. You know what I mean? It's like a lot of people taking it on the chin here. So that's that's part of this discussion. It's got to be reconciled against the numbers. And right now it's and, not. And I thank you, Dave. You made a lot of very good points. Another point is like for example, in in, in Gary's grandson, you know, now we have the ability for the parents, you know, to actually be connected, you know in the phone with the numbers. So if something is going on with hypoglycemia or hyperglycemia, 
you know, one of the parents is able to make a change, not, not wait for the doctors, but, you know, somebody in the house is able to monitor that 24 hours a day. The other thing is, you know, with kids, you don't never, you never know when they actually will go and play ball and, and, and not eat before, you know, this allows them also to be sure that the trend of glucose, of the sugar is going down and the risk for hypoglycemia is there. So, you know, that CGM is just in, in, in immense utility for those people. And finally, you know, if we talk about COVID and diabetes, you know, if we look at the excess number of hospitalizations and complications, you know, it's patients with diabetes poorly controlled and obese. So again, you know, controlling glucose, you know, and like Keith said, you know, we need to control blood pressure and we need to control lipids. But, you know, in, in this instance, glucose control seems to be very important for the prevention of severe cases of COVID. Vaccination is important for everybody with diabetes. Aaron, can I make a point? Yeah, uh, sure. We, we've heard throughout this conference about disparities, but let me drive home how bad the disparities are, especially for the African-American community. I'm a child of the Lower Ninth Ward. I'm a kid from the neighborhood who did good. If you look at amputations, the amputation, getting your part of your limbs cut off in African-Americans two to three times out of the general population. If you look at blindness, African-Americans have one and a half to two times more blindness. If you look at heart failure, hospitalization, heart failure death for black men and black women is significantly higher than that in whites. And if you look at dialysis, being on the kidney machine, if you calculate that African-Americans are 13% of the population, although we know the US census lies, but if you look at African-Americans as 13% of the population, that percentage on dialysis driven by a combination of hypertension and diabetes is approximately 32%, three times than that would be predicted. It does not make sense because we are, have lost productivity, we have lost lives, we have more chronic expensive care simply because we're not controlling diabetes and associated cardiovascular disease. Now, I have no idea why the people who run this great and wonderful country think that this should be the way it is. It should. And we should need to do something to remove these disparities based on race, ethnicity, sex, gender, social class, and geography. It just doesn't make sense. Here, here. Yes, absolutely. We have a couple of questions that I want to get to. We just have about time, but I want to make sure of that. I asked a couple of these questions, so I'm going to put them out there and ask Dr. Davidson and Dr. Ferdinand to comment. First, uh, one question is, I'll read them off and then um, you, you can comment. Uh, there's a question about uh, AFib and um, AFib episodes related to uh, hypoglycemia. Uh, so that's one uh, question about CGM and gestational diabetes. Uh, is that in the works? Uh, then there's another question for underserved uh, at-risk uh, diabetes patients during the pandemic. Uh, is there data to support the effectiveness of telemedicine versus inpatient physician and subspecialty visits? Uh, I'll, so, take, I'll take one and hit it real quick. Atrial okay. is related to diabetes. It's worse with uncontrolled diabetes. And again, there are now monitors. You can buy them in the form of a watch that will actually detect periods of atrial fib and tell which patients may need anticoagulation. Thank you. Dr. Davidson on CGMs and gestational diabetes? Yeah, I will take that one. You know, uh, 
usually gestational diabetes initially, you know, the, there are minor changes in glucose and, and during pregnancy, we really need to keep the blood sugars as close as possible to normal and they're lower than in, in non-pregnant adults. So we actually, in many cases, when we see that the glucoses are actually increasing, we order CGM. It's a battle, but we can do it. And it should be part of the armamentarium, you know, because we can decrease the number of C-sections, we can decrease the number of complications, and a lot of things that happens during pregnancy. So hopefully it will be part of the regular care in patients with gestational diabetes. Thank you. Here, I can comment on the last question because one of the things that was observed here in Arizona is that the use of telehealth and smartphone interaction and consultation and education, asynchronous education, actually improved utilization in, in my city. So a lot of people have a hard time getting to the medical center. You know, there's a lot going on and, and they may have one car and four jobs and all sorts of stuff going on in families, but everybody tended to like using telephone consults. It was surprising. You miss the laying of hands, you do, and you have to deal with labs, you know, a little bit differently, but in terms of education and in terms of reliability of, of appointment keeping and stuff, it went up and, and everybody was kind of happy and surprised by that. Well, thank you so much. Um, I knew this was going to be a, a great session, pull together some of the smartest folks I know to talk about really a deep problem that's being ignored uh, in this country. Uh, this diabetes, and it is now reaching epidemic proportions, uh, has to be addressed um, uh, uh, before we run into the same situation that we have with COVID, where we are uh, straining our uh, healthcare system to try to manage uh, everyone living with diabetes. And so I want to leave you with these parting words and hopefully um, you'll explore them, which is mitigating patient risk. Uh, that's what we're really talking to you about. How do we find ways to make sure that people living with diabetes are not going to the emergency room, not going to hospitals? Those are not the places where we want to provide care for them. So I want to thank the, the panelists and thank uh, everyone in attendance and uh, look forward to seeing you tomorrow as we uh, go to our third day of the summit. So thanks again. Thank you. Thank, thank you all. You.